0: Well, good evening. My name is Patricia Farrer, and I'm president of the British Society for the History of Science. And I'm absolutely delighted to welcome so many of you to the Science Museum tonight. This has been a sellout event, which is really not surprising because we've got two wonderful speakers tonight, Andrea Wolfe and Gaia Vince. Every two years, the British Society for the History of Science awards its Dingle Prize for the best popular book in the history of science. And this year, Andrea Wolfe is the winner. Um, We are in very good company giving her this prize, as her book has already won two other prizes from the Royal Society and the Royal Geographical Society. What's going to happen tonight is, to begin with, she will talk to you for 10 or 15 minutes about her book, which won the prize, The Invention of Nature, which is about um, the explorer, Alexander von Humboldt. And then after that, she'll be in conversation for about 40 minutes with Gaia Vince. Gaia is herself also a prize winner for her marvellous book, Adventures in the Anthropocene. So I'm going to hand you over to Gaia, and I'd like to, you to welcome these two speakers, who I know are going to be extraordinarily entertaining. Thank you.
1: Hello, hello. I hope you can hear me. Brilliant. So, um, this is going to be a fantastic evening, um, let me, tell you, let me tell you a little bit about how I'm interested in this. So um, recently I went on a two and a half year journey around the world and I was interested in exploring our relationship to the planet and how the earth systems all interact together, how we're changing that, how we're changing the climate, ocean currents, um, our agriculture, our cities how these all interact, and how they're affecting people. So, as I went around the world, I came across some of my very famous predecessors in some of the place names that I visited. So, Vasco um, da Gama and Magellan. And then, when I went to the Americas, I, obviously, there was uh, the great Italian explorer, Christopher Columbus, who's um, colon in, in, in Spanish, and uh, the revolutionary hero, Simon Bolivar. And then, as I made my way from the tip of Patagonia up to the Caribbean, I became aware of somebody else. And his name was associated more with the natural world and with the force of nature. So there was the Humboldt penguin and the very scary Humboldt squid and the great upwelling current that brings life to the Pacific that goes along, all along the, the, uh, the western flank of the continent, the Humboldt current. And there were volcanoes and mountains Rivers named after Humboldt. And as I travelled up from the, the great ice fields to the deserts to the climbing up mountains, going across volcanoes, from looking at the ranch culture, looking at the plantations, entering the humid, biodiverse life of the Amazon and its rivers, I wish... That I could have had this book as my companion. Because Alexander von Humboldt was really a remarkable man living in an extraordinary time. So, ladies and gentlemen, you are in for such a treat tonight because you're going to learn about this man, and there is no more brilliant guide. Humboldt than the fantastic writer. Now this book has won so many prizes that when I looked up all the accolades I thought if I list them all there will be no time for Andrea to actually talk tonight. (laughs) So I'll just tell you that she won the Royal Society Prize for the best science book. She won the Costa Biography um, Prize because this is a biography but it's so much more. It's about an extraordinary man living in an extraordinary time but it's also about his Vision. His, it's called The Invention of Nature because it is, he's somebody who really realized how earth system sciences work. Right at the very core, he understood nature in a new way. And one of the ways he understood it is by going out there, exploring, and seeing it for himself, just as Andrea has and as I did as well. So it is my great pleasure to welcome your speaker for tonight, Andrea Wolf. <laughs>
2: Thank you, Gaia, so can you hear me? Yeah, so um, when uh, Patricia invited me and they said, um, we would like you to be interviewed, I said, I, because I'm a bit of a control freak, and I said, oh, I quite like to do my own talks and you never know, and only if you get someone really good, and then they got Gaia, so I was like, okay, that's totally fine. So um, I'm gonna do just a kind of 10, 15 minute, fifteen-minute, minute introduction to Humboldt because so many people have not really heard of him. Um, Let me get my slide up. So I'm going to start with a quote um, about Humboldt. This is what Ralph Waldo Emerson said about him in 1869. Humboldt was one of those wonders of the world, like Aristotle, like Julius Caesar, who appear from time to time as if to show us the possibilities of the human mind. So one of those wonders of the world. Um, But who was Humboldt? So let me start with a few facts. He was born in 1769, the same year as Napoleon. He was the son of a very wealthy Prussian um, aristocratic family. And when his his parents died, he was left a very wealthy man. But he left his life of privilege, and he spent his entire fortune on a five-year exploration of Latin America. And it was a journey that shaped his life and his thinking, and that made him really legendary across the world. He was a visionary thinker and scientist. Uh, He was so famous um, that his contemporaries said that he was the most famous man after Napoleon. They also called him the Shakespeare of the sciences. Uh, He influenced politicians, thinkers, scientists, poets, artists, revolutionaries. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, for example, called him one of the great ornaments of the age. Napoleon was jealous of him. Charles Darwin said that he would have never boarded the Beagle without him. Henry David... Thoreau's book Walden would have been a very different book without Humboldt. Simon Bolivar, the man who liberated the Spanish colonies, called him the discoverer of the new world. Goethe, Germany's greatest poet, said that a few few hours with Humboldt was like having lived several years. He was, as one contemporary said, the greatest man since the deluge, and I really think um, he was. He died in eighteen fifty nine just a few months before his ninetieth birthday, so a very long life and when he died ten years afterwards, the centennial of his birth was celebrated across the world in um, september eighteen sixty nine and there were when I say across the world, there were parties everywhere, there were parties in Moscow, there were parties in Mexico City in um, uh, In uh, Buenos Aires, in Egypt, twenty-five thousand people marched through the city of New York. Eighty thousand people in Berlin, his hometown. So, the whole world was really utterly in love with Humboldt. Yet today, he's almost um, forgotten here. Other than he's very famous in Latin America, but not really in the English-speaking world. So. Why should we care about a man who's been dead for a long time and who's been forgotten? Um, Clearly, I think we should care a lot, otherwise I would have not written this book. Um, I think there are many, many reasons why he is still incredibly relevant and important. And one is that he came up with a concept of nature that still very much shapes our thinking today. So he came up with this idea that nature is a web of life. He described Earth as a living organism where everything was connected from the smallest insect to the tallest tree. He <clears throat> he brought together the arts and the sciences, and I'm going to talk a little bit um, about that later to kind of make use of the slides, um, because he said that we needed to use our imagination to understand nature. He was the first to describe global climate and vegetation zones, um, he, or oh, he kind of came up with isotherms, which are the the wavy lines, which we can still see on the on weather maps, he comes up with this idea of global climate zones and global vegetation zones. Here's a plant distribution map by him. So he's he's really using um, scientific data in a very visual way. So he is what I would think is really the the, the founder of what we call today infographics. Um, he. Shows this, for example, in this um, image, his very famous Naturgemilde, which is one of those untranslatable German compound nouns, kind of is a painting of nature. But what you can see here is Chimborazo, which was a mountain that was very important for him in the Andes. And all these little black lines here are the plant names of the plants he found as he climbed Chimborazo. Chimborazo. And he drew them all into this, into the mountain here, at the altitude where it found it. And then to the left and to the, oops, to the left and to the right, you have 20 columns which give other information um, such as um, the blueness of the sky, um, temperature, the humidity of the air, all, again, put into this according to the altitude. So what you can do is you can draw one, line across, you can trace one line across the mountain, you get all the information there is about a certain altitude. So, packed with complex scientific data, but yet so easily understandable, because he believed that knowledge should be available for everybody. He was also the forgotten father of environmentalism. He warned of the devastating effects caused by monoculture, deforestation and irrigation, and amazingly predicted uh, harmful human-induced climate change already in 1800. So he was a pretty extraordinary guy, I think. Um, So the invention of nature was my attempt to find Humboldt, but also to do a little bit to kind of help him to go back to his rightful place in the pantheon of nature and science, where I think he he belongs to just as Isaac Newton does or Charles Darwin. And when you write a book about an explorer, you obviously have to travel to all these places um, to follow his footsteps, um, all in the name of research. So for me, this was very much a journey through archives and letters and manuscripts and diaries, but also through landscapes. They were as important. And I just wanted to show you a couple of, few of those steps. So I read his notes in the archives in Berlin, and I don't know if you can see that, but he has the worst handwriting on the planet. Uh, That's the only bad thing about this guy. Um, I found his passport, um, his Spanish passport, in an archive in Quito, so that's the passport that the Spanish king gave him and that allowed him to travel through the colonies. I read Charles Darwin's copies of Humboldt's books and all of Darwin's pencil marks in the books, Um, and these books actually went with Darwin um, on the Beagle across the world. I went to Antisana, which is one of, those, um, v- one of the volcanoes in Ecuador that he climbed, and at 13,000 feet um, we found this hut, which is the hut in which Humboldt had actually spent the night before the final summit. And at that very moment, moment this kind of wild herd of horses suddenly turned up, and I was standing in the middle of it, and then four condors were circling above my head, so that was a pretty good day of research. <laughs> Um, I paddled along the Orinoco deep in the rainforest in Venezuela. I went to Colombia. I went to Mexico. I saw many of the animals that Humboldt had described, anacondas, the capybara, the uh, the Orinoco crocodile. But for me, the most exciting moment was really when um, I went to Chimborazo, the mountain that was so elemental for Humboldt's vision of nature. Um, I only made it to 16,500 feet. He obviously went further. So let me tell you a tiny little bit um, about the expedition. Um, Humboldt and his traveling companion, Aimé Bonpland, a French botanist, left in 1799 and spent five years in in Latin America. Now, We're going to have to skip over some really exciting bits here, so you're going to have to read the book for that. But I wanted to give you a little bit of a flavor what kind of man he was. So he was... If I only had one word to describe him, it would be restless. I mean, he's restless until he dies, basically. He's kind of endlessly driven. And um, he was not a cerebral scholar. He was brazenly adventurous. And he pushed his body to the limit, be it half frozen and bleeding on the highest volcanoes or racing through anthrax infested uh, Siberia. Humboldt used his body again and again. He used it, he experimented with his body. He drank the um, deadly curare poison which the indigenous people used in their blowguns. He rubbed chemicals in self-inflicted wounds on his body. He was the most experienced mountaineer um, in the world. He Paddled 1,400 miles deep um, into, uh, along the Orinoco, deep in the rainforest. So he really pushed his body um, to the limit. And his life, for me, reads like an adventure novel. And that's, you know, it was incredibly fun to write about him. So this is his route. He went um, to Venezuela, and then he went back up to, then he went back to, then he went to Cuba, then he went back to South America, to Catagena, and then Bogota, all the way down to Lima, two thousand five hundred miles along the Andes, um, and as they climbed the Andes, they climbed, oh, as they crossed the Andes, they climbed every reachable volcano there was and it 's almost like as if the more difficult it was, the more Humboldt seemed to have enjoyed himself, and he was a bit of a show-off, and I found this amazing letter, which he wrote to a friend in Germany, a long letter in which he described all the dangers he'd encountered, the jaguars and the, the snakes and the mosquitoes, and then he ends the letter with this sentence, and you, dearest, how is your monotonous life? <laughs> so he's, he's a very much a flawed personality also, which I think makes him um, very interesting. So he was endlessly curious, and he saw nature as a global force, and he saw connections everywhere. And as he traveled through South America, he saw how humankind was destroying nature. And he noted it first, really, at Lake Valencia, which was in northern uh, Venezuela, was then a very wealthy agricultural region. And he saw here how plantation owners had, felled all the trees and how then heavy rains had washed off all the good topsoil, how the water levels of the lake were falling because the farmers were using the water to irrigate their fields. And seeing this destruction, he was the first to talk about the elemental function of the forest for the ecosystem, without using the word ecosystem because the word didn't exist then. But he talked about the tree's ability to store water, to enrich the atmosphere with... um, moisture, and their protection against soil erosion. So it was here in Lake Valencia that he first talked about harmful human-induced climate change. And as he traveled, he became pretty depressed about this. Um, There's an entry in his diary when he's in South America where he talks about a possible future in which humankind might travel to distant planets. And he says, and if that happens, we will take our lethal mixture of greed, ignorance, and violence with us. And we will leave, and this is what he writes in his diary, we will leave these planets as barren and as ravaged as we've already done with Earth. So pretty prophetic. Um, so he was... Um, so I wanted to just very quickly talk about hi, him bringing together the arts and the sciences because he said, he's, on the one hand, he's obsessed with scientific measurements. So he schleps 42 scientific instruments across Latin America. But he's not just interested in empirical data. He also says that we need to feel nature in order to really, truly understand it. Uh, So he says, nature must be experienced through feeling and imagination. And he said, what speaks to the soul escapes our measurements. So he sees nature as this world of wonder, as this magical world um, that is driven by something that's not just divine force. And he is endlessly curious um, about this. When he returned to Europe in 1804, he has 40 trunks. He brings 40 trunks filled with his collections. Um, He brings... 60,000 plant specimens. Um, Don't worry, I'm not going to show you 60,000. So these are just three. At the moment, um, you can see them in Paris and also in in Berlin. He also comes back with 4,000 pages from his diaries, hundreds and hundreds of maps and sketches. And I'm just going to very quickly run through a few. So he brings, for example, lists and lists of languages um, from the indigenous people. He um, again and again... um, draws the profile of mountains, um, monkeys. This is a diary page from the Orinoco, so the different fishes from the Orinoco. Um, Endless tables, again and again, um, altitude, astronomical um, observations, the temperature of the Humboldt current. Um, He maps rivers. He comes back with maps that are more precise than any um, maps before from South America. Volcanoes, more um, mountains. This is a tiny little sketch where he compares the different snow line of mountains from across the world so from the Andes, from the Himalaya, from the Pyrenees, from the Alps and from, the, from Lapland and kind of compares it to the latitude where they are. So everything is about comparison. More rivers uh, but also the bones of a llama for example. A beautiful orchid um, birds. Uh, this is the Humboldt penguin um, which he saw in Lima and this is another page from his diary which um, I love because these are the tents they use in the Andes. So they, they built tents out of branches and then cover them with leaves so they are completely watertight. Uh, Inca monuments. Uh, maps of, like, larger maps of South America. And this, I think, is very, very special. This is today in an archive in, in Bogota. And this is the or- this original sketch of the Naturgemälde, And you can see that everything was already there. So after his return, he moves to Paris, where he lives for 20 years, and then he moves to Berlin. And in both cities, he becomes the center of scientific um, inquiry. He rushes from one scientific meeting to another. He lectures. He writes dozens of books. He actually jumps so quickly from one subject to another that very ma- that many people can't actually follow him. And I wanted to show you a couple of his manuscripts, which I think explain a little bit how his mind worked. So these are his lecture notes. Um, he kind of starts fairly conventional enough, um, kind of writes it down, kind of like this. And then he has a few ideas and he you know, squeezes them in the corner. And then the sheet is full, and then you would think he takes a new sheet of paper, but that's not what he's doing. He then starts writing his ideas on little bits of paper, and then he reads something in a book, and he, put, he tears it out, and he all glues it on top of each other, and he invents these little red dots, so it can all stick on top of each other. So you end up with this multi-layered collage of thoughts which, I promise you, have no apparent order. Um, I don't know how he did his lectures with those. Um, but I think what it shows us is that he, his mind works like he understands nature. It's a web. It goes in all directions. This man does not think in a linear way. He goes everywhere with his thoughts. Um, towards the end of his life, he writes a book that brings all these things together, and that book is called Cosmos. It becomes a huge international bestseller. The first volume was published in 1845, and it was translated into dozens of languages, and it was an extraordinary book where he took his readers on a remarkable journey from Earth to outer space, from the tiniest fleck of moss to the highest summits of volcanoes. He talked about... Botany, but also about landscape painting and poetry. So it was a book that was unlike any other book published at that time. So as scientists crawled into their ever-narrowing disciplines, Humboldt did a book, wrote a book that was exactly the opposite. He brought everything together. And it was a, a poetry of nature that was really pulsating with life, and he described nature there as a wonderful web of organic life. So for me, and I'm going to end with this, so for me Humboldt is really the bridge between the enlightenment and the romantics, between the sciences and the arts. He is, um, you know, on the one hand you have scientists such as Isaac Newton, who described that rainbows were um, created by light refracting through uh, raindrops. And on the other hand, on the other side, you have poets such as John Keats, who said that Newton has destroyed all poetry of the rainbow by reducing it to a poem. Now, Humboldt is the one who is exactly in between. He, we tend to draw this very sharp line between the subjective and the objective, between the arts and the sciences, but Humboldt didn't. And I think his insight that we need to use our imagination to understand nature is more important than ever before. So he talked about the deeply seated bond which unites the sciences, the arts and poetry. And when I look at today's environmental debates, um, at least in the political arena, what I'm really missing is this sense of awe for nature. This recognition that we are only going to protect what we love. So these debates are very often based on dry statistical projections, on careful legal wording, on numbers, which is, of course, all very important. But what I'm missing there is a passionate, dare I say, emotional advocacy for our planet. And I think there's a reason that this very iconic photograph of Earthrise um, has been hailed as the beginning of the environmental movement. So this was taken in in 1968 during the Apollo 8 mission. This was the very first time that we saw our Earth in her wholeness. This tiny white and blue marble set against the vastness and blackness of space. Utterly beautiful, unimaginably fragile. And I think this was a moment that was carried by a sense of wonder by a photograph that was art or science or what was it. And I think it's the same sense of wonder that drove Humboldt. And he said that he believed that nature was in a mysterious communication with our inner feelings, but he also warned 150 years ago that the restless activity of large communities of men may gradually despoil the face of the earth. So for me it feels as if we've come full circle. And I like to reclaim him a little bit as the hero of our environmental movement. Thank you.
1: you. Wonderful, thank you so much. And everybody, if you haven't already got it, do yourselves a favour, buy this book, it's brilliant, buy it for your friends, your family, buy yourself two copies.
2: (laughs) It's Christmas soon.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Well, I just wanted to pick up, first of all, a little bit about this earth and science. So, Humboldt was friends with Schiller and Goethe. I mean, what sort of influence was that? He spent a lot of time... With them in in various houses, discussing these really long intellectual conversations and these letters. I mean, in your book, you you talk about all this letter writing, which which um, has sort of fallen out of our culture now. But I think was probably key to how he um, how he composed his thoughts.
2: Yeah, so I think there are two things. One thing is that I, Humboldt wrote about 50,000 letters during his lifetime, received about 100,000. Um, so he was a bit like a spider in a big web, kind of collecting all this information from everywhere. But at the same time, I would say, for him it was equally important to meet people. Um, so he had a reputation that he would... Um, He just talked incessantly, basically, Uh, so he liked meeting people, and he, I think the encounter he had with Goethe in particular uh, in Germany when he was a young man in his mid-twenties was incredibly important, and I think without Goethe, Humboldt would have never been the scientist he became, because he arrived in this tiny little town, it's called Jena in Germany, and he met Goethe there, and but he arrived very much as a child of the Enlightenment, as a, as a scientist who believed in empirical research and in measuring and instruments. And then he met Goethe, who was not just a poet, but also a scientist. And um, it was Goethe who ins- kind of really inspired him to think differently about nature. And he later Humboldt later said that it was um, Goethe who gave me new organs through which to understand the world. And it was these new organs with... With those, he went to South America, basically. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and and the salon culture as well. I mean, how helpful was that? Because, because it's easy to think that now we have, with the internet and with being able to quickly go and visit other people and, and have these chats, that we communicate more profitably, perhaps. But... With letter writing and salons, it's it's almost a more sort of concentrated, more focused discussion.
2: Well, it's uh, the let. I mean, the letters are not just how are you and you know, let's have a let's meet up. These letters are pages and pages and pages about scientific um, discoveries, queries, questions, everything. And then when he later writes his books, he goes back. You know, they're cutting out, but he's cutting stuff out of letters. So that's very important. It's it's almost like his. um, Kind of his research bank, really. Uh, the salon culture, I think, was really good for him because he could promote his work and his books. So he was he was very much an entertainer. He and he would and especially in Paris, which had such a big salon um, culture. He would go. So during the day, he would do his scientific work, and then. In the, in the evenings, he would go to four or five salons, and li- literally holding court, and no one was allowed to say anything. So he could also be quite unpleasant. So there, there are some people who said um, they were, uh, they refused to leave a party before Humboldt left because they were so worried about his um, snide um, comments about him.
1: Yeah, I got the impression that he, that he could be really quite cruel and he was, he was very, very pompous. But then the other side of it, he spent a lot of time just solitary on his own. And also this patronage. So, uh, you know, he, he took these often much younger men with him. And it was a very kind of intense relationship where they... They really depended on each other so so you did bon, bon plant there, but there were there were a number of there, these there have, people so who who were sort of collecting for him and and sort of so intellectually there, yeah, working with him there,
2: there are two things there's there's one thing that he's um, so most historians, including me, we think that he was gay and um so he has this very intense relationship with younger. Uh, male scientist. that's the one thing and then but the other thing he does is he's a he's a great patron so he is forever helping struggling artists and scientists so even
1: when he had no money himself yeah he's he was basically
2: still... yeah handing out his last coins all the time so he dies a pretty poor man um he spent his fortune on this expedition and then on his publications uh, like hundreds i mean thousands of engravings that all had to be paid for um but he also, he would do things that he would get stipends for um, other um, scientists. He would um, recommend artists to the king, um, that they kind of, you'd be funded by him. And then in return, he would do these things that he would ask an artist, for example, to go to South America. And then he'd give him exact uh, instructions, where he had to go, on which mountain, what he had to paint. And he forever tried to go to, uh, to India. He wanted to climb the Himalaya to compare them with the Andes. And the British kind of unsurprisingly didn't let him go to India because he had been to South America, very, very publicly criticized the Spanish colonial rule. So the Brits were not really going to let him do that um, in India. So he failed to go, and he regretted that um, for the rest of his life. But he then managed to help um, Joseph Dalton Hooker who was British, to go to India, and then would bombard this poor man with letters, saying, like, please go up the southern slope of this mountain, just tell me which plant is growing at what altitude. So he he had his kind of little army of helpers who then supplied all the information for him that he needed when he was older and when he didn't travel anymore.
1: I was struck when I was reading this book about his celebrity. So so first of all I mean you mentioned he came from a wealthy family um he he had friends in courts in different countries he was a celebrity scientist but also publicly so he had patronage of the big scientific um but also um but, but also, he was, you know, his books were bestsellers. They just r- went off the shelves immediately. How do you do that, Humboldt? And was, you know, <laughs> Not all of was, them. <laughs> there were
2: quite a few just well, sat on and, the shelves. And
1: shelf. the manuscripts he wrote. Bloody hell, these enormous, you know, um, volumes and volumes and volumes. I mean, Incredible. And yet, he was hostage to the times that he lived in, so he couldn't go to India. There was a French Revolution happening, Napoleon, uh, the the Russian situation, um, when Bolivar was um, um, entering La- Latin America. You know, it was, it, it, there was there was so much, there were so many problems that you know he couldn't get to where he wanted to go in Siberia. He was having trouble getting everywhere. It took him years and years and years. Why, you know, why was somebody of his celebrity still still thwarted? I think that's really interesting.
2: Well, I think, I th- well, first of all, I, I would say that um, it was very unusual for a private person to do these expeditions. First of all, no one really had the money, but also, all the other big expeditions were um, normally financed by either by a merchant cartel or by a king or queen. Um, or by government, but you know it was really not a private person kind of business to do that. So that was one reason why he had problems, um, because he was not like, say, Captain Cook on the Endeavour kind of sent out here by, by, by the king. But it was also he was travelling at a time of really global wars, um, which made it very hard to find passage on ships, which also made it very hard to get your stuff back to Europe. So he was collecting everything in triple um, um, copies. So he would send one herbarium to Paris, one to England, and one to Germany. So, But I think he was... Actually, getting along not too bad because it was very unusual for a foreigner to get permission from the Spanish king um, to travel. They, through I mean, it
1: sounds like they all loved him, but I think he was pretty but it was, charming. But it, uh, yeah, he yeah, was charming, that he was attractive, you know, um, attractive. he was incredibly talented. And he had this I know that you're slightly in love with him, aren't you? And uh, not like only but he's been dead no. for like two no, centuries now. Also, he didn't now. really
2: like women, so you know, what's the point? Well, <laughs>
1: I don't think that's the only problem with, you know, him and you hooking <laughs> mm, up. There's, know, but, you, but know. you know. Well, a few um, hundred
2: years doesn't matter.
1: But Europe at the time was so different. I mean, Germany didn't it didn't really exist. It was it was separate. It was separate kingdoms. Yeah. You know. Um. Th- so the Europe we think of now, in this this last sort of 50 years of peace, where uh, all the scientists are collaborating with each other and so on. You well, know, it, the scientists tried to maintain this kind well, of but
2: higher it, plane. But it actually worked. I mean, that's the amazing thing. That despite all of this, these scientists worked together. So he, for example, sends one herbarium collection. Um and in, on a, puts it on a boat, and there, he puts a letter on it and says, if this boat gets captured by the English, please send these trunks to Joseph Banks, because mm-hmm. no matter that the English and the French were... And it works. So mm. Banks got some stuff, kept it, and later sent it to him to Berlin. So it's, um, it's extraordinary. And then when he arrives, so on his way back from South America, he stops in, um, in Washington, because he wants to kind of hang out with Jefferson a little bit and uh, and Madison, and then they're, they're just little things where he get, he just goes to the Secretary of Treasury um, Albert Gallatin, and says, "Can I just borrow a couple of hundred dollars because I've kind of run out of money and i will you pay we'll pay you back later so that worked because he was a big name, but then Madison wrote a passport for Bonpland because Bonpland was French, mm-hmm. saying, you know let." this man through, he's a scientist, he's kind of traveling in the name of Scientific
1: science. Scientific community. Yeah, yeah. so it's this,
2: is this kind of letter of... Uh, Republic of, le- of letters, which is still working at that time. And Humboldt is doing things like, when he arrives in 1804 in Washington, um, the timing is pretty perfect, because Jefferson has, Jefferson has just acquired the Louisiana Territory in the previous year, so double the size of America. New neighbor is Mexico.
1: This is when the new world was the new world. It was all so
2: new. Exactly. So then, so Mexico became the neighbour of the United States. Humboldt had just spent a year in Mexico, has his trunks full of information about Mexico, and just unpacks all these maps to Jefferson, which is kind of espionage, really, because this was he was you know traveling on permission of the Spanish king and they were the US and the Spanish were battling what's the exact border region here
1: and the the accuracy of the rivers and the territory the maps that he drew was incredibly helpful of course to exactly the, to exactly the because they could
2: you know f- there was the, because Jefferson had tried to get this information and absolutely failed the Spanish ambassador was not going to hand that over
1: because however we try and look at sort of scientific investigation as being um, above these these wars and 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 being for some sort of higher purpose, and it's very partisan. It's very political. This sort of information.
2: Well, Jefferson would like to think so too, but he was pretty happy to get the information.
1: Now, the other thing about Humboldt is he was he was um, he was a humanist. Essentially, he had a big problem with one thing. I one thing I that really struck me actually um, was when he arrived in. Um, South America he arrived I think in Venezuela and he was he was immediately interested talking to collecting information about the culture of the indigenous people he met but not in a not in the way that many of the colonial explorers and colonial um people were doing at the time which was which was um which, which was very much sort of imposing their culture and, 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 and having this kind of hierarchical system. He didn't feel like that at all. He was genuinely interested, and he, it sounds as though he, he held them in the same regard mm-hmm. as his sort of compatriots.
2: So he's, uh, he was very unusual for a European traveller in that sense. So he arrives there, and he does not look at the indigenous people as the, the savages um, and as these kind of uncultured barbarians. And what he does is, and one, that's why I showed this list of languages. So he, he collects languages. He, at some stage, writes um, to his brother, who is a, who is a um, linguist, and says there's no philosophical concept expressed in a European um, language that could not be expressed in any of the languages in South America. He is... He, as he travels through South America, he, for example, draws all the, the Inca ruins. So he's, he's incredibly impressed with this. He collects um, Aztec hieroglyphs. So he returns back to Europe with a portrait of a country of an ancient civilizations that were rich in, agro, in, in, in architecture and in language, which was a completely new um, way of looking at South America basically kick-starting the interest in these um, civilizations. And then that's the one thing. And then the other thing is that he was absolutely fascinated by how the indigenous people looked at nature. And I, um, I think that a lot of this idea of the earth as a living organism actually comes from talking to, living with the indigenous people, encountering them. He notes in his diary quite a lot about how... their worship of nature, for example, Uh, he admires them, he's really impressed by, he says that they're the best geographers I've ever met, the best observers of nature. Uh, He gets sometimes frustrated, once in a while you have the kind of, the white European kind of coming through, when he gets really frustrated because he has to speak to them through a chain of translators. And it's a bit like Chinese whispers. So if he wanted to kind of find out the name of a plant, it was really frustrating. And then he would sometimes go a bit like, why don't they understand me? Which is obviously a little bit arrogant. But on the whole, he travels through that continent with a very, very open mind and open heart.
1: And that actually surely helped him because because by by gaining that kind of... um that kind of understanding of how the indigenous people related to the environment that they knew incredibly well. He could see it through the eyes of a stranger, but also through their eyes. And certainly in, in um, many of the, like, Bolivia and, and many of the indigenous countries um, of South America, they, they do have this very strong kind of Pasha mama, this, this idea of the of the earth being a living organism and... And, and, and living very much in harmony with it, which is which is the way that many cultures around the world, including European cultures, used to view nature. There, w- there wasn't this um, sort of this uh, Christian domination that, that we have yeah. now. Yeah. So I,
2: the, the, he he notes um, in his diary at some stage when he's speaking to the indigenous people, he writes down um, they look at nature as a as a like we look at as, like we look at monuments of art. So there, there are monuments of nature, like a tree, for example. And he's, that's something that he just picks up. And he's, the one thing also to maybe to note is that Humboldt writes a five-volume book, Cosmos, which is about everything without ever mentioning the word God. So he's, um, he's he's not, you know, he's not, religion in the kind of. Christian way, um, he talks about a force in nature, he talks about nature as a living organism but he does not talk about a divine force in nature, which I think is very important which is something that when he died for example, in all the kind of eulogies about him, that people were not pleased about that, so they were kind of trying to not talk about it um, and he was he was criticized for being godless and he he never explicitly wrote about it, I think just to avoid, he was a great avoider of conflict. Um, so he was, uh, he was very diplomatic. So he didn't actually put it down on paper, but he basically... Um, he saw how the established church, for example, treated the indigenous people in South America, the missionaries, and uh, he was very, very critical about that, just as he was very critical about slavery.
1: I think... that I, I, I wonder if this idea... If, if divorcing himself from this idea of of earth and nature being sort of created in those positions by God and and humans being created to sort of um, have dominance over nature and, and nature being there basically for our use. Divorcing himself from that and seeing and seeing nature itself as a living organism opened his mind to the possibility that they were all interconnected and that we were part of this interconnected web and that by changing things we might change things for the worse or... Um, or that we could change it for the better. And, and, and this idea that, that because it was all interconnected, it meant that on other continents, when you saw the same thing, when you saw plants at the same altitude on a mountain, it would make sense if you would see similar mm-hmm. kind of evolved, but obviously he wouldn't use that word, but similar sorts of types of ecology Yes, at so those levels. I wonder if it was just, if that kind of gave him the freedom...
2: Well I think I think that, that I think that that's right but I think there are two things I think one thing is that he traveled gave him a freedom that other I mean we are also used to kind of traveling all over the place now but it was still a, you know not a thing you do all the time so he saw things no one else had seen or no one else had written about obviously other people had seen but very few Europeans had seen it a lot of explorers just do the coastal areas he went you know into the into the um, the heart of the continent that was very unusual um, and because he was traveling with a very small entourage he i mean it was bon plan and a servant and a couple of guides and a lot of mules, um, but he was not traveling like your typical Victorian explorer who has like two hundred people marching behind him, so he was nimble he kind of could see stuff, so he sees so he goes. And he really interacts it. He really interacted yeah. with his environment. He climbed things.
1: He went down mines. Yeah. He, so he, he looked he, at the well, geology.
2: Exactly. He's, so he's. But but because he's not traveling with two hundred people, he can also. You know, he can hear something. That's what. You know, when we travel, he's somewhere. He hears something. He goes like, I'm gonna go there. Because he's not on this kind of prescribed route by the king. So he sees nature differently because he can follow ideas. He can think, oh, I'm thinking about that. I'm going to go and have a look there. So he brings all of that together and he sees nature as a global force. And then the other thing you said I think is very true is that by seeing humans as being part of this great, beautiful tapestry of nature, we also can affect something on nature in a good and in a bad way. And he's really the first to talk about this, um, this idea that if we do something, this will have an effect over there. And that is the new thing. And in, in a way, I think that's one of the reasons why we might have actually forgotten about him, because it's, we take it so for granted, this web, these connections, that we have forgotten the man who's given us this idea because we've, you know, after him, people like John Muir, through everybody's kind of taking it on. James Lovelock, um, oh, I didn't mention that. So because Gaia is called Gaia, of course, I wanted to say when when he publishes Cosmos, he wants it to originally to be called Gaia, which is um, would have been perfect after you, of course. <laughs> oh, of course, <laughs> after me, yeah.
1: And the other thing, of course, is this. He, this is relatively new, so when he 's going to a lot of these places he's just seeing the beginnings of environmental change mm-hmm. so even though Europe had been changed for some time going going somewhere going somewhere new and seeing seeing those changes seeing somewhere where the forest has recently been um, uh, cut down, it almost it almost gives him a different perspective that maybe maybe other people weren't just weren't able to see before
2: maybe yeah although i mean there was there had been quite a long time agriculture on plantations already in the in the new world right. um, so and the destruction was quite widespread so for example this area around um, lake valencia that was a huge area it's like half the size of but France. But it was thought basically. of as good, wasn't it? Yeah, Clearing, so basically know. until Humboldt kind of starts saying these things what they said is you know the the a forest basically was seen as a hostile environment. You know, you clear it, fields, straight lines. That was the beauty of nature, you know, an orchard a vegetable garden, fields, you know, rows and rows upon corn. That was seen as... That was seen, as, that was seen as beautiful nature. Yeah. That was... We are improving on nature. Um, there were there were quite a lot of voices at that time, especially in North America, um, because, because the area around Washington, of course, was kind of tropical and swampy, where they said, well, the more we fell, the better the climate will be. You know, it'll bring fresh air here and it will be all much better. So they were actually thinking the opposite to what he is doing. The one thing I would say about Humboldt is because he's so um, restless, he he never really follows up on one thing really properly, because then he has another idea, another idea, another idea. So these are nuggets everywhere. So this is why in The Invention of Nature I kind of... I I wanted to also write about people like George Perkins Marsh or John Muir, that other people pick up on these ideas and then spend their lives writing lots of books about just this one bit, you know, about the effect of deforestation, while Humboldt just saw it, wrote about it, had this kind of little genius insight, and then he carries on with something He's else. A and then comes back to it again when he goes to Russia and sees the same thing.
1: Also destroyed there. So slavery. I mean, that's kind of surprising because slavery was quite a fashionable thing <laughs> in those days. Yes. And he was, he was friends with Thomas Jefferson, and he depended on Thomas Jefferson for, for a lot of his, well, for his travel, for patronage, and so on.
2: He didn't really depend he, on him that right. much, he did, because he didn't travel in North America. But he was, they were friends, and he was, so Humboldt was incredibly outspoken abolitionist to everybody except to Jefferson, um, so when he was in Washington, everybody basically crossed his path. He'd go, like, what, why? You know, What's going on? Why did you do that? And then until he dies, whenever an American came to visit him, and there were many of them, the first thing he would ask is, like, what's happening? And he would talk about the evil of slavery. And I think the reason why he doesn't talk to Thomas Jefferson about it is because even, you know, arrogant, confident, obnoxious Humboldt um, was a little bit too worried to criticize the president of the United States directly to his face. So I just think that was a diplomatic right. choice he made. But he was very, um, I mean, in his books, there's there are a couple of um, quite clear um, criticism of the United States, where he says, you know, how can the founding fathers who have fought for liberty and equality do such a thing? Look at Simon Bolivar, who has abolished slavery um, with the Constitution in 1826, I think, of Bolivia. So he praises Bolivar for that and criticises the founding fathers for not doing it. He
1: was very influential um, in, in Bolivar's revolution I mean Bolivar Bolivar credited him with yeah. that, didn't he? Yeah. And and this idea of um, of of um, involving indigenous people and, and um, former slaves against the colonialists was, was quite um, in, in his revolution so was perhaps what made the difference.
2: I, I so I, I mean that that is that's that's something that Bolivar had from the um, from the president of Haiti. So he was the only one who was giving him military support, and he said, but for that you have to um, free your slaves. Um, But Humboldt was very important for Bolivar in several ways. One is that, so we think of Bolivar as the, the, the revolutionary of South America, but when he started the revolution, he had only been to Venezuela. This is where he came from, from Caracas. And so he used Humboldt's books about South America to learn about all these other places, because Bolivar had this idea of this kind of one big um, union, just as the United States, in a way. So he was learning about what's today Ecuador, for example, from Humboldt's books. So that was one thing. And then as he read Humboldt's books, he realized that there was a, there was a man who described this new continent, which the French scientists were kind of looking down on, as this glorious, magnificent, grand continent where everything was so beautiful and gorgeous, where nature was so sublime. And he began to use um, metaphors uh, drawn from Humboldt's writing. He said, at some stage, he says that Humboldt has liberated South America with his quill. Uh, so he's using he's and he's using. So it's the
1: romantic language that made the um, South Americans fall in love yes. with their own landscape yes. and, he, and, and, and
2: want to. And he and and he uses metaphors again and again. Bolivar uses metaphors again and again, kind of like you know, we are standing on a volcano which is about to erupt. So it's all about this um, mm. the the nature of South America, the kind of the size the, the, that was that made them. Proud of being South American, and rather than just being that colony, which was, you know, suppressed by the by the Spanish and the so Humboldt he gave, played in a. So he po-
1: gave them their own country. To them with new light and, and in a very poetic way. I mean, some of the some of the pages you've shown me are so beautiful with the drawings, um, with the, the language that he used was very beautiful. I know you're working right now on a on a new way of looking at Humboldt. Tell yeah, so I, I'm this. doing
2: a, I'm doing a graphic novel. Um, I'm going to show, you, obviously, put them at the end of my my thing. So what we are doing is um, we are. We are using um, Humboldt's. So, this is his study. This is isn't his study. So. It's a watercolor of his study. And this is like old Humboldt being in there, kind of explaining it. This is the prologue, explaining a little bit what's happening. So, this is just about his adventures. And we're using, as you can see, we're kind of using his. Um, this is a. This is about the Orinoco. So it's, it's shaped like the Orinoco, but it's also. You can even see the word Orinoco here. So, so it's it, a
1: collage it, of his original yeah. work. Yeah. So and, we kind and, of bringing. Got so an
2: artist so here, so well. here we are. So here he's basically traveling along the Orinoco on his manuscripts. Um, uh, so it was for me. It was, I was trying to. Do I have more. I was trying to. Um,
1: Brilliant. Because it's so visual. When you read the book, it's. Um, y- I mean it's so beautifully written but you 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 see the places that he's visiting and it's so he travels around so much and you see the you, you see the people he's talking to you see the animals you see the landscapes yeah. and so on. It's it's such a great idea and for to for me.
2: It was very important because like he things. brings the arts and the sciences together, and I, it was it was very strange. So when I wrote the book, his diaries, these four thousand pages, were only available in transcription. The diaries were owned by a private um, by a family, and they were in. Just when I finished the book, the archives in Berlin bought them, so I couldn't use them. Just mm. the transcripts, and so but of course I kind of went and had a look at them and I was like oh my god they're just so beautiful so I thought I really want to find a way to also show a little bit what an artist he was and how his mind worked not just in this kind of scientific way but also in a quite artistic way so for me this was a, so. I found this amazing young 25, 24 year old artist and um, we've been working on this for a year now so it's coming oh. out next, next April I think.
1: another book to buy next <laughs> April but when I look, I, I used to work at um, Nature, the science journal, and um, they've got a library obviously of their old journals from this time. And when you look at the papers published then, and you compare them to the papers published now, it's a, which are basically now it will be text, and if you're lucky, there'll be you One know graph. A, a graph or um, yeah or an annotated diagram if you're super lucky. Then it was. They were descriptive. They were stories. they so just sometimes random anecdotes in the middle yeah. of a scientific paper. They were rambled on. They had beautiful illustrations. It was a completely different way, of of explaining the science of our world.
2: Well, he what he does. Well, I so some not all of his books, but the books he writes for the general audience because he really believes in kind of democratizing knowledge. They are written in a way that everybody can understand. Then, and what he does is he's like. A, he, Great fan of endnotes, so you can read the chapter, and then if you're really interested in the kind of hard signs, you go to the endnotes, which are much longer than the actual chapter, or you can just ignore it. And in the chapter, he describes nature very poetically. So he kind of brings together these evocative landscape descriptions with hard scientific data. He's super. Um, so he t- he tells, for example, he tells his publisher they are not allowed to change a syllable of a sentence because otherwise the melody of the sentence would kind of collapse. So he's very particular about his writing. And one problem for the English speaking world, I think, is that the, he suffered quite a bit from quite stodgy Victorian translations. So if you read him in the original, it reads actually a little bit better than the, um, than the 19th century translations. They kind of cut out really good bits. So when I was, when I was doing the research, I was kind of first looking at the English, then at the German version, and then you suddenly think that because then because when I was writing about Charles Darwin being influenced by Humboldt, I'd read the Humboldt edition he was reading. But when I was talking about Humboldt what he was thinking, I read the German original and then you suddenly see oh, they just left out this entire paragraph. So it was quite interesting to see w- what happened with the translation. No, that's very nerdy. I'm going to stop now. No, I think, it's, I, think it's,
1: <laughs> I think it's really interesting how you put this book together. Right? Because obviously, as a fellow author, I'm looking at this thinking, Jesus Christ, how on earth, all this information, he did so much. The one thing I hate Humboldt for, in fact, all the geniuses in your book... Are there incredible photographic memories?
2: Yeah, I know, it's so annoying.
1: I mean, so he led this incredibly rich life, and yet he remembered it all. Mm. And he clearly barely slept, because he was working, you know, Yeah, he slept like three hours
2: a night, or something like that. Yeah, Lots of coffee. So
1: that's, yeah, I'm quite, you know, I don't like that about him.
2: Although he, I have to say, you know, just, he also, he can ramble on. So, some of his books are kind of, Quite repetitive, so you know. You think I've, I've kind of oh, read yeah. that well, in we've another all book. Well,
1: have sold something twice, mm, but he <laughs> does it a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so. How how did you decide how to do it? I mean, there's obviously a chronology to it, but when did you decide to in order to do this book, I have to go out there and I have to I have to follow his explorations?
2: Well it's almost the other way. So I've done a book that my very first book was about English gardens, yeah. And it was just so boring just travelling around in England and I was like, no. <laughs> This has to change. So, so one reason why I got really keen doing this is because it allowed me to travel a lot. Um, but then it was... So when I started... Did we, you go
1: to Siberia?
2: I was in Siberia before. before. and um, So like five years before, not to follow his footsteps. And since mm. I'm not a very wealthy Prussian aristocrat, uh, I couldn't afford really? five years of travelling across the world. So I had to kind of pick my points, you know. Okay. I didn't... Um, I it definitely to helps to have a patron. It does, yes. it does. Where does one find... I don't know. Mm. Um, maybe someone here. Um, Indeed, So step forward. So, but so <laughs> when I was reading his diaries, basically, yeah. I decided there's, I, cannot, you know, I cannot write about this epiphany he has on the chimborazo. If I've, you know, because all I have in my head is the Alps. You know, because these are the kind of the highest mountains um, and the Rockies. Maybe I had seen, but so I needed to see the the Andes. I had never been to the rainforest, and it was incredibly important. I mean, I did find the rainforest quite hard, um, but it was important to feel the the humidity and the it feels quite claustrophobic, and and you suddenly realize, well, he just you know, I went there with a the guide. I knew where I'm going, um, and he just went not knowing. So it so then I took. Transcriptions of the diary pages that were relevant to these places, and kind of read them in the place, and then I read them again when I was at home, and then I thought, like, okay, I got it. You know, I got it slowly now, so at least a bit of it.
1: Incredible. And towards the end of the book, you've mentioned um, you follow up some of the themes of the book with the main influences that he had further on. So Walden. Um, who is it? Who who do you have at the end?
2: Oh, right. So John Muir. John Muir, yeah that's Thoreau, right. George uh, right at the end I have John all the ones they are alive when he's dead. But there are, so there are John many. Muir, yeah. George Park's. Well basically I have eight chapters in here, eight mini biographies about people he influenced. Um, because... because it was a movement. It was basically the first earth system science. I mean, this
1: is a this is now a field, a very, very recent field, yeah. only of the last sort of ten, twenty years of people. Sort of really studied these separate fields in quite the integrated way, and it's almost like he started this it's approach. It wasn't it? And then it, it yeah, and yeah. then it went away. I mean, I was, I was so very sad that Darwin and he just missed each other well, because that would have been an extraordinary. No, 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 they, no, 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 no.
2: They met, they met, well, but it kind of went completely. It, yeah, went, it because backfired was because, because, because Homeward was just talking and didn't yeah. let Darwin say a word. Yeah. I just got a sign
0: that we have to... Um, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I mean, you've just been talking about the end of the book, so that seems a perfect place to stop. And I just want to thank you both. You've ranged over such an extraordinarily wide range of topics. I thought this was going to be a book about... Uh, a talk about mountains and flowers, but we've done politics and slavery and later influence, and I can see we have up here on the screen screen, uh, the next... Uh, book is forthcoming, so I anticipate that in a couple of years' time we'll be here again and I will be awarding you a second prize. (laughs) (laughs) But in the meantime, what I'd like to do on behalf of the British Society for the History of Science is present you with this, uh, the Dingle Prize, and thank you very, very much indeed for an absolutely marvellous conversation and a wonderful book, and Gaia, thank you also for leading the way in such a stimulating and enjoyable conversation. I'm sure we've all had an absolutely fantastic time. It's been very entertaining and also very informative as well and it's not easy to bring those together. So thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you.